I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to our scripture reading. We'll begin in the book of Genesis, read some verses from chapter 8 and 9, and then turn to Psalm 31. So Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, Winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. And then we turn to chapter 9, verse 8. And then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now let's turn to the book of Psalms and read Psalm 31. Psalm 31, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, 
For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you, in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence. From the plots of man you shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. O love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. And the theme for the sermon this afternoon is taken from verses 14 and 15a. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the spring equinox has come and gone, so that means spring is on the way, and all summer is too again. Maybe uh, spring arrives a little earlier in Fergus than it does in Owen Sound, but we've noticed that the grass is getting green and the birds are singing and building nests. We know that summer's on the way. We've had days of sunshine, and when the sun is shining and the birds are singing, it's pretty easy, in a way, to trust in God and to trust that He is there. But what about when the bottom falls out of your life? What if cancer rocks your world? What if, what if you have yet again another miscarriage in your family or anything else? Where is God then? And of course, what about our, our current situation, our social and economic stress that we're in? Where is God now? Well, the Word of God addresses these kinds of questions head on. The Bible does not skirt around the issue of human suffering. The Bible also addresses the question, where is God in our suffering? And Psalm 31 is one such place in Scripture. The psalmist finds himself in very difficult circumstances, distressing circumstances. He writes that he has many adversaries, and because of these enemies, he has become a reproach to his neighbors, an object of dread to his acquaintances. His enemies are even spreading false rumors about him. And so his neighbors and acquaintances, they believe it and they avoid him. And in this psalm, he pleads for protection from the conspiracies of his enemies, from those false accusations and the lies of those who hate him. And then we come to these wonderful words in verse 15, my times are in your hand. This is a confession of absolute trust. 
And of course, the your in this confession refers to the Lord of verse 14. I trust in you, O Lord, you are my God. And so it's important that we stop right there first. It's so important that we stop here because like the psalmist, if you are going to trust that your times are in the hand of the Lord, you need to know who this Lord is. In this psalm, we find that the psalmist repeatedly addresses God as the Lord with all capital letters. This is a reference to the name of God, the personal name of God, Yahweh. This is the name by which he revealed himself to Moses and to Israel when he delivered his people from Egypt. In Exodus 3, he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. He said to Moses, my name is Yahweh. Tell the people that I am has sent you. And with this name, God is telling us, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. In other words, God is the self-existing God, the eternal God. He has no need of you or me in order to exist. He is utterly independent, and yet everything and everyone is dependent upon Him. Our existence depends utterly on Him. And since God is who He is, that means He is primary. Everything else is secondary. The universe is secondary. Humans are secondary. God is absolute first and last. And everything in the universe and the universe itself is nothing in comparison to Him. Yahweh is the creator. He is the sustainer of everyone and everything. He is infinite. He is eternal. His power and His perfections are unchangeable. His goodness and glory are unalterable. His wisdom and justice, they are flawless. God cannot be added to. He cannot be subtracted from. The God of the Bible is self-defined. He's righteous. He is everywhere. And nothing happens except through Him and by His will. And what is most striking about when the name of Yahweh is used in the Bible, it, it is used when, when the Bible is talking about God's personal relationship with His people. The fact that He reveals Himself as Yahweh tells us that His first priority in relating to His people is that He wants us to be sure that we know that He is our God. He wants to have a relationship with his people. That comes out, for example, in the preamble to the law. I am the Lord your God. And the wonderful thing about the great I am is even though he is self-existing, even though he doesn't need us, he still wants that relationship with us. He didn't need the people of Israel. And yet he wanted them to be his people. He put his favor upon them. He calls them the apple of his eye. And that's why he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He made a covenant with them. He is the God who was so motivated by love that he rescued a people for himself. And Yahweh is a God who is so motivated by love to know us and to be in relationship with us that he sent his own son into this world to become a man, to live in this sick world, to live in the muck of our lives, to take on our suffering, but even more to take on our guilt for bringing all of this suffering into the world. That's really why Jesus came, because of sin. 
Our sin and our sinfulness is the reason for all the suffering and the pain and the tears and the sickness. And Jesus came to pay for that. That's why we remember Good Friday, the day on which Jesus gave up His life so that sinners like you and I can have peace with God. But it's also why we remember Easter Sunday, the day on which Jesus rose from the grave to win victory over death so that sinners like you and I can have eternal life through faith in Him. And this, dear listeners, is why the believer can say with absolute confidence, my times are in your hand. The child of God knows that the Lord is for the sake of Jesus Christ, my God and my Father. In Him, we confess in the Catechism, in Him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity He sends to me in this life of sorrow. He's able to do it because He's Almighty God and He's willing also because He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of Christ His Son, He is my God and my Father. And that's why we can echo the words of David. I trust in You, O Lord. You are my God. My times are in Your hand. So that means we're in God's hand. We're not in the grip of blind forces. The events of the world are not determined by a merciless fate or grim chance. We don't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, whatever will be, will be. We're not tossed about on on an ocean of chance. You're not just a random product of a random primordial explosion that happened to plunk you down on planet Earth. And neither are you one little cog in a giant economic wheel. You're not just one number in a sea of humanity. My times are in your hands means you're not trapped by fate. You're not trapped by blind deterministic forces. But you're being guided and directed and trained in the school of God's divine and sovereign providence. You are being guided and directed and trained in the school of God's divine providence and sovereign providence. You see, we have a heavenly Father who's in charge of the whole thing. And nothing, nothing escapes His notice. Even the worst things end up for our good. And of course, that's hard for us to see. Because we only see a few links in the chain of God's plan. Our lives are like a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. What, 60 or 70 or even 90 years compared to eternity? We only see the tiniest pieces of God's plan. And we can't make sense of the big picture because we only see that little part. Only one or two links in that chain, that eternal chain. But God sees the end from the beginning and He knows what He's doing. You know, we understand how that works between parents and children. Just to give an illustration, you tell your kids, don't do this. Because if you knew what, what I know, then you wouldn't do this. But we know how children are. We Hopefully we remember that we were that way once too. Your son says to you, well, if you were a nice dad, you would let me do this. Right? Well, then you say, son, you have to trust me on this one. You have to trust me because have I ever, ever given you a reason to think that I'm a mean dad? 
And son says, no. And then you say, well, have I ever given you a reason to believe that I would want to hurt you? And your son says, no. Well, then you say, son, you have to trust me. You're going to have to take it from me. You're not going away tonight. You're not going to get what you want. Why? Because I love you and I know that what you want is not good for you. And the Bible says that if earthly fathers, sinful fathers, know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? My times are in your hands. And just like a young child can't understand when dad says, son, this is not good for you, or you better not do this, we have to trust and accept God's providential care in childlike faith. Because God's providence, even when we mature in faith, is not something that we can interpret, is it? If I try to understand what's happening in my life, trying to put it in the big picture of God's history of revelation, I'm probably going to get it all wrong. Just think of Job. Job got it wrong. His friends got it wrong. They thought they had it figured out, but they were totally wrong. So wrong that God was angry with them. So wouldn't it be very presumptuous of us too then to try to tell God how to exercise His sovereign providence? At the very best, we can only understand, begin to understand His providence when we look in the rearview mirror. And, and we should ask ourselves, how do we know how our trials and sufferings fit into God's grand plan? How do you know whether or not God is trying to teach others through your trials and sufferings? Perhaps through your suffering, God is not so much testing your faith, but He's testing the faith of your family and the faithfulness of your church family. The author of the book of Hebrews, speaking about God's providential work in our lives, calls it divine fatherly discipline. And he writes, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The painful parts of our lives are meant to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's hard for us to understand. Hard for us to see, except when we look back on how things have gone in our life. And I trust that many of us have experienced this. But this isn't just true for ourselves, but also for future generations. By God's providence, our children and even our grandchildren will reap the peaceful fruit of righteousness of our suffering, even perhaps when we're dead and gone. And so we have a responsibility in this regard. Your children, your grandchildren are watching you. They are watching how you handle and how you accept and how you pray through the trials of your life. Right now, they are watching as we react to the current pandemic, to the economic fallout and the social restrictions. 20, 40 years from now, our children and grandchildren are going to be talking about how dad and mom handled the situation, how dad and mom led them through this crisis. And that will impact how they, in turn, accept and deal with the trials that God sends in their life. Again, we know and we confess how we ought to react. Our catechism teaches us to confess that as people of God, we trust in Him so that we are patient in adversity 
and thankful in prosperity. Well, prosperity should never be a reason for pride, should it? We are experiencing firsthand how God can change the economic climate of our nation in a matter of weeks. And so every believer may, a believer may never be arrogant, no matter how successful he has become, or rather how successful God has made him. Prosperity should bring, should bring humility because we know that our times are in God's hands. The farmer knows that if it doesn't rain, the crops are not going to look very good. And so we're thankful in prosperity, but patient in adversity. And it should, an uncertainty and adversity should not be an occasion for panic. There is a saying, the providence of God is a soft pillow upon which to lay your head. Who do you turn to in the middle of the night when you wake up in a panic? If you don't turn to God, then where would you turn? In Ecclesiastes 7, the teacher tells us, consider the work of God. Who could make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will come after him. You see, the Lord is aware of your needs, and the same Lord in whose hands are your times, he is sovereign over the universe and over your life. And without his providence, life would be unbearable because there are many, many things that could make us fearful. Because if you think about it, we're very vulnerable creatures, aren't we? John Calvin writes about this in his Institutes, and I'll I'll quote a section from what he writes. Innumerable are the evils that beset human life. Innumerable, too, the deaths that threaten us. We need not go beyond ourselves since our body is the receptacle of a thousand diseases. That's pretty applicable to today. In fact, our body holds within itself and fosters the causes of diseases. A man cannot go about unburdened by many forms of his own destruction and without drawing out a life enveloped, as it were, with death. For what else would you call it when he neither freezes nor sweats without danger? And wherever you turn, all things around you not only are hardly to be trusted, but almost openly a menace and seem to threaten immediate death. And then he goes on to say, whether you're traveling by ship or by horse or by land, by horse or by carriage, if you're walking in the street, there's all kinds of dangers that threaten your life. And you might think, well, that's not very pastoral, but what's his point? His point is this, if your times are in God's hands and nothing happens without his will, You don't have to stay awake at night worrying because He is always awake and He is looking after you. As the psalmist says, He who guards you will neither slumber nor sleep. And that's why we trust that our times are in God's hand. And so we will be thankful in prosperity and patient in adversity. And that also means we have no reason for self-pity. Consider the story of Joseph. Humanly speaking, Joseph had every reason for self-pity. If only Father Jacob had not made him a coat of many colors. If only Father Jacob had not made him his favorite son and spoiled him so that his brothers became jealous. 
And if only his brothers had not been so jealous, then they wouldn't have tried to kill him. And when that didn't work, they wouldn't have sold him into slavery. If only. By all intents and purposes, his life should have been a mess. So when his brothers met him again, if, if they would have thought, maybe what if it ever happens that we meet Joseph again, they would have expected his bro- their brother to be a total mess, but he wasn't. He had learned to wait on the Lord's timing. And he told his brothers, I know that you had a very bad reason for sending me here, but it really wasn't you. It was actually God who sent me here because God intended it for good, even though you intended it for evil. Joseph understood my times are in your hands. He understood that God gives life. He was grateful for the kindnesses that God had shown to him, and he learned to trust unfailingly in his faithful God. And for that reason, he was able to care for his brothers. He cared more for them than for himself. And he recognized his responsibility under the providence of God. And again, that's something we need to recognize When we confess, my times are in your hands, that makes us responsible. We have a responsibility to look ahead, to plan, to be wise. The two go hand in hand. Consider the story of Nehemiah, for example. Nehemiah and his helpers were being threatened by enemies as they were trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after they came back from Babylon. And the Bible tells us what they did. And we prayed to God and set a guard as protection against our enemies day and night. It doesn't say we prayed to God and sat around waiting. It doesn't say we posted a guard and didn't bother to pray. No, we prayed to God and we were responsible. We posted a guard. We know our times are in God's hands, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum. We don't say my times are in God's hands so I won't bother seeing a doctor. No, because the same God who says my that our times are in his hands is the same God who directs the hands of the doctor and gives him the skills to perform surgery. And that's why we go to the doctor, or when we go to, for surgery, we pray for the doctor and for God's blessing. So God commands us to both pray and to work, to trust, and to plan. And so, beloved, there are many truths tied up in this confession. My times are in his hands. It means that I trust the Lord, who is, for the sake of Christ, his Son, my God, and my Father. It means that he loves me deeply, because my relationship with him cost him the precious blood of his Son, who is my Savior. And that is the reason why I can trust him completely. That's why I know that my times are in his hands. And it means then also that I have no reason for pride when he blesses me, but I don't have a reason for panic either because he's always watching over me. Because he didn't just save me for nothing. He saved me for a purpose. And that means I can still go to work. I can still make plans. I may pray for his blessing, for as as his beloved child, I am working and living under his providence. And that makes me think, and maybe you've thought this before too, I don't understand, I can't imagine how anyone could live through life without believing the providence of God. I can't imagine how how anybody could have peace without believing 
My times are in his hand. It's not possible. Because once you've discovered the divine providence of God, you have security. That's when you have peace. And then you don't have to be fearful in expectation of what fate might bring you because there's no such thing as fate. You're not a tumbleweed that's just blown around by the wind, but you're a beloved child of your heavenly Father. And again, you might ask, well, how can you be so sure that this is true? Well, the answer lies in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We can be sure of God's providential care because of what Christ has done. Humanly speaking, if there was any man who had any reason to doubt, any reason to be afraid, it was Jesus. We have, even have evidence of the great agony that came over him as he faced his final hours. The thought of facing the cross, facing the combined fury of Satan and all the fury of hell, facing the eternal wrath of God condensed into three hours of darkness, it overwhelmed him to the point that he was to the point of death. And his fear was so great that his sweat fell out of him like great drops of blood onto the ground. And yet, he did not hesitate to go to the cross, did he? And so Good Friday has become a day of celebration for God's people. But it doesn't end there because Christ rose on Easter Sunday. He is alive. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And for his sake, the Father has us in the palm of his hands. And so, we may with confidence humbly commit ourselves to God without being afraid to find comfort in the providence of our Heavenly Father because He holds all things in His power. And He has given all authority in heaven and on earth to His Son, who is our Savior. He rules all things by His authority and so governs all things by His wisdom that nothing happens without His loving will. And so we can be confident that the Lord will provide. He cares for us, even during a worldwide pandemic. He provides everything we need for body and soul. Even if we would get sick and die, He will provide. He has done so. He will do so. This He has promised. And He is always faithful to His promise. And we know that because spring is coming and summer is coming. Already thousands of years ago, he promised to provide for his people. When Noah and his family came off the ark, God said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And we have evidence of that every year again and this year too. And for our sake, he even gave a sign of his promise. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And we see the evidence every day that God is keeping his promise. Winter is over. Spring has arrived. Summer is coming. God is always faithful. Just more evidence that he is faithful. He always has been, and He always will. Amen.